Good morning, church. My name is Ruben Amalalo, and uh, I am the youth ministry director here at FCF. Uh, and now I introduce myself as Master of the Divine. Um, <laughs> this is a joke. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, we've talked about a sermon series uh, for this Advent season, Longings of Advent. Um, I told my nieces that yesterday I was going to an Advent concert, and they asked me, what is Advent? Now, these kids go to church like three times a week, um, but they don't know what Advent is. That's because we're Ghanaians, and we don't, we don't celebrate Advent. But we know what Christmas is, um, and I really enjoy the tradition we have here where we celebrate Advent and, and get in a posture of, of just longing and thinking and reflecting on, on the season, um, and, uh, and, and we, we think about Christmas, and we think about Advent. But what is Christmas? What is Advent? As I, as I read the scriptures, as I prepared for today, uh, I came up with the fact that Christmas is about the pursuit of God. Christmas is God's pursuit of his people. It's a rescue mission. It is a guarantee that God has not and will not stop searching for us. He will not stop searching for his people. It's God's way of saying, I am here to take you home with me. This, of course, assumes that there are some things wrong with the human condition. We need help. We need rescuing. We are in big trouble and we need outside help. In our passage today, the prophet Isaiah shows us why suffering people can still rejoice. Why suffering people can still long. Why suffering people can still expect a savior. He gives us really good reasons for rejoicing, Isaiah does. Self-forgetting good news. Hope in the midst of deep darkness type news. Hope that one day there will be unending justice, reconciliation, and restoration. That one day we will hear of world peace and not chuckle at the thought. That one day darkness, death, despair, depression, and bad news would not be the norm. This is the meaning of Christmas. This is the meaning of Advent. And you might ask, where are you getting these wild ideas from, Reuben? You think you're the master of the divine now so you can come up with stuff? Well, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, um, and see what the word says. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7 says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts would do this. All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord, you're good and your steadfast love endures forever. Uh, Lord, I pray that as I... Um, Speak, Lord, you would speak through me, uh, through your Holy Spirit. Prepare your people's hearts. Help them to, um, help us to expect it, expectantly, Lord, long for your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are three things I want us to see from this passage, and I've titled the sermon, see, uh, this sermon, This is Good News. This is good news. This is good news for dark days. This is good news for all days. And this is good news for us. And I've shared this with you guys before, but the 3 a.m. thing that I want you guys to so 3 a.m. like theme is when, when anyone wakes you up at 3 a.m. tomorrow and asks you, hey, what did Reuben speak on? Okay, the thing that you're going to tell him is because of his zeal and je jealousy, God will pursue us in our darkness. Because of his zeal and jealousy, God will pursue us in our darkness. If you don't get anything at all from anything I say, get this. Because of his own self-motivated zeal and passion and love and jealousy, God will pursue us in our darkness. So my first point, good news for dark days. In his book, uh, Whose religion is Christianity? Lamin Sanye, a native of Gambia, professor of history at Yale Divinity School, highlights the underreported explosion of Christianity in, for example, Africa, South America, and China. He calls this the resurgence of Christianity. Even in places where imperialism and slavery and colonialism brought us Christianity. See, this is happening at the same time as secularism takes over in the West and Christianity is fading out or is being pushed out. Um, at the same time, in, uh, in, in, in crazy astronomical rates in the affluent world, he, he likens it to, to two streaming uh, um, uh, waters, rivers, just going in opposite directions. So what is causing this Christian resurgence? Sammy explains in his book, um, 
We should not rejoice because utopia has arrived, nor be afraid because Amagadon, I'm sorry, Amagadon, Amagadon, how do you, Amagadon, um, is threatened. But rather, we should take heart because suffering people have found faith and hope. The people who have lined up, determined to enter the church, have eaten of the bread of adversity and tasted the waters of affliction, and still they press to come into the church. The church exists to welcome precisely such as these. See, people living in darkness have seen and hear good news, and they recognize it. So by the time Isaiah is writing this prophecy, Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom with its capital, Assyria, I mean, uh, Samaria, um, and, the north, and the southern kingdom with its capital, Jerusalem. Now, it's a bit confusing when you read the scriptures because the northern kingdom is still called Israel, and God refers to Israel. So sometimes you're not sure whether he's talking to the whole thing or he's talking to part. But you have to get this. With God, they're all one. They were divided, but they're still his people. When he took them out of Egypt, he took them out as one. And these northern tribes, uh, which was most of the tribes, had lost total touch with God. They'd lost the temple. They divided from the temple. The northern kingdom, Israel, later is conquered by the Assyrians who resettled the population with Gentiles. These, were, these will become mixed breed of apostate Jews and Gentiles who conquering tribes had brought to assimilate the population to prevent them from uh, revolting. The Syrians, the Syrians, the, the Macedonians, the Babylonians, and even the Romans would at some point take control of the northern kingdom. Now, this is why, for example, Jews and, and Gentiles in, in Samaria don't get along. This is why Jesus had to go through Samaria. This is why the, the woman at the well had issues with Jesus talking to him. There was a huge division. To Judah in the south, these were as good as dead. These were as good as Gentiles. Yet to God, these were the prodigals. To God, these were rather in gloom and anguish. To God, these were in deep darkness. You see, when God looks at people... He's not just seeing the outside. He sees them with his heart. And looking at the nation to the north, he's, he's describing them in, in heart-wrenching terms. They're in gloom. They're in anguish. Now, granted, God takes full responsibility for their gloom and anguish and in breaking them and bringing them low, because we're told in the middle of verse 1, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, Yet he promises a future of forgiveness for them. Now this, of course, would have been inconceivable to the religious establishment of Isaiah's day, um, that God will show mercy to this, these wayward brothers to the, to the north. To them, Israel got what they deserved. They had chosen to reject God. Yet God would have to take matters into his own hands. In chapter 4 of our, of our gospel reading for today from Matthew, our scripture reading, uh, we see that when Jesus was ready to start his ministry to fulfill this prophecy, he deliberately moves into Galilee. He moves into Galilee of the Gentiles. 
That was a deliberate choice. Now, think of Galilee as Dundalk, not downtown Baltimore, okay? Yet God blows up our categories of who we think he should associate with, doesn't he? Who we think deserves his grace, whom we think he deserves company with. And that's what God does when he moves into Galilee. And you see in the scriptures, everyone is suspicious of him because this Galilean. Why would he even take that title, Galilean? But he does. See, the very people considered apathetic towards God are the ones whom he uses in our scriptures. This is a fair warning to us. You can never write anyone off. In a collection of uh, Advent sermons in a book, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Tim Keller quotes uh, from a collection of essays by, by Dorothy Sayer, uh, who wrote, For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he did, limited and suffering, and subject to sorrows and death. He, that is God, had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it was worthwhile. See, the good news for our darkness, for our dark days, is that God, Jesus, moves into our neighborhood, into our homes, into our hearts, no matter how dark it is. And he thought it worthwhile. He did not see our messy house. He did not see our messy hearts and say, yuck. I don't want to get involved with that. He moves in. But he does better than just move in. He stays forever. Which brings me to my second point, good news for all times, or good news for eternity. The good news of God's pursuit is that not only does God pursue us in our darkness, but also for all times, for eternity. Jesus doesn't move in simply to have some kind of pity party with us. What good would that be? Granted, yes, Jesus does have compassion on the poor and the sick and, the, and those who are in darkness. Yet, yet, he moves in to draw us out. He moves in not to have a pity party, but to have a party. He moves in not that we might have a fighting chance, but that we know that there is victory, guaranteed victory. Victory over the darkness. Now, in seeking to get the idea across, the prophet pulls out all the big guns. It's like, it's like a spouse pleading with his, his wife to stay. One of the running jokes that Goda and I have is, I tell her, if you leave me, I am coming with you. Now, have you ever wondered why the prophets is the largest part of the Bible? 
is God pleading with his beloved, get right. I still love you. I want you. I, 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 I love you. I care about you. It's God's pursuit of his bride. His jealousy as a husband over his bride. His covenantal commitment to her mind, body, and soul. Her flourishing. He would not let any trivial matters separate them. In chapter 8, verse 19, God rebukes the people for trying to find a way out of the relationship. He says, When they say to you, inquire of the medians and the necromongers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire on the behalf of, on the, on, uh, of the dead on the behalf of the living? Essentially, God saying, Am, am I not your husband? Have I not loved you, O Israel? Am I not your God? The pursuit of God is for our good. And he will not relent. He will not give up until he's accomplished it. See, rather than relying on on the Lord, um, the nation, both south and north, (laughs) We're ready to seek alliances with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and even the Egyptians. God literally told them, I took you out. Never go back to Egypt. The prophet Hosea likens it to a bride moving in with her lover and her husband bringing her her daily meals. This is the image God Shows himself ass. This is how low God will stoop himself. Yet he promises to win her over. Not for temporary relief, but rather for her eternal bliss. Where would you find such love, family? Where would you meet a God like this? This is why the hymnist was saying, My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me. Love shown to the loveless so that they may lovely be. See, Isaiah acts as an onlooker at a train station watching a reunion between the bride and his long-awaited groom. He tells us what the eternal outcome of this pursuit would be. What will happen when he has finally won over his bride? This is the meaning of Christmas, family. God's pursuit of his bride. Isn't Christmas romantic? Now notice the the passivity on the part of the people in verse 2. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at, a har- at the harvest, as they are glad when 
they divide the spoil. See, sometimes we think God doesn't really know what he wants out of this relationship. See, maybe he likes us, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he wants the best for us, maybe he doesn't. See, but what we see in the scriptures is God knows exactly what he wants for his bride. There is no question what he wants for her. He wants her to flourish in mind, body, and soul. He wants the best for his bride. He delights in doing that. See, two of the major outcomes of Christianity in the West is the the economic um, benefit and, and the social benefit. And one would have to ignore historical facts, really, not to see the economic especially. Um, See, but like all good things, we have we've taken it for granted. We just assume there's going to be economic prosperity. And we pursue it at any means possible. See, as we said earlier, though, the West is becoming more and more post-Christian. And one of the signs of this is the distorted economic message that has been exported around the world. Generally, we call that the prosperity gospel. American, uniquely American type of gospel. Now, granted, yes, the world is receptive of it, just loves it, eats it up. Right? But we have to know where it comes from. It comes from America. And while many of us would not be caught even a mile away from any of those charlatans selling this junk, there's a social outcome of the gospel that I think we assume as well in the West. Economist Thomas Sowell commented, for example, on our view of slavery, um, but you, don't, you, can, you can also apply it to other things. Like Bell Hooks talks about the imperialistic, white supremacist, capitalistic, patriarchy capturing the American system. And, she's, and, and uh, uh, Thomas Sowell says in, in his book, Intellectuals and Race, he says, When Abraham Lincoln said, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong, he is expressing an idea peculiar to the Western civilization at that time, and by no means universally accepted throughout even Western civilization. So it goes on and says, although intellectuals today may condemn slavery and imperialistic, white supremacist, capitalistic patriarchy as a historic evil of our society, What was peculiar about Western society was not that it had slaves, or it was imperialistic, or it was capitalistic, or it has white supremacy, or is patriarchal, but that it was the first civilization to turn against slavery. See, one has to ask, though, where do we find the moral spine to rid the world of all oppression? Where do we find the basis to rid the world of all oppression? How? Where do we get this great idea that there's something wrong with oppression, if it benefits us? Destroying slavery was economically nonsensical. And so is destroying any form of injustice. It makes no sense because it benefits us. It makes us comfortable. Where would we find a moral fiber to do that? Well, Isaiah doesn't only tell us the outcome of the pursuit. He gives us a basis to pursue eternal bliss for not only ourselves, but for all around us. To pursue justice, even. Tells us three things. 
It tells us of a justice for the oppressed, of a disarmament, and he tells us of a child. Of a child. So in verses 4 through 6, he says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the, the, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken us on the day of Midian. For every boot of, every boot of the trampling warrior in battle turmoil and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. See, the nation will rejoice because the oppressed are not temporarily freed only to find another taskmaster, master, like a dog returning to its vomit, but are eternally free. See, race, uh, say, uh, slavery will not turn into an, the unjust system of sharecropping or Jim Crow or mass incarceration. See, those who are freed will be freed eternally because the chief oppressor, the devil, his yoke, his rod, his staff will be broken eternally. Amen? See, the nation will rejoice because God, the one who pursues us for our eternal bliss, has become like us, all the way vulnerable. This is the meaning of Christmas. See, God stopped getting defensive about oppression. He stopped giving us all the reasons why there's oppression in the world and says, you know what? I'm just going to get in there with you. I'm just going to suffer with you. I'm just going to bear the burden with you. But he does more than that. He defeats oppression. He defeats the rod. He breaks the yoke. He breaks the staff. He owns the problem and comes to us to be our Emmanuel. This is the healing bomb. Unless we think Christmas is just some happy, clappy, sentimental holiday for children. The prophet shows us why that is not the case, which brings me to my last point. This is good news for us. See, throughout the entire prophecy, Isaiah refers to those in darkness and refers to the nation's gladness and joy. But here he gets personal. He gets personal. He says, Isaiah tells us, Isaiah goes on to tell us that this child is for us. He's given for us. Yet, what will this child be to us? Well, first he starts by saying the government shall be on his shoulder. See, the idea here is that he is born for dominion. He's born for authority. He's born to rule. <laughs> That's the only purpose he came into the world. That's the only reason why he's given. And he's not going to ask our permission. He's not going to ask our votes. See, the three wise men 
saw this when they brought him gifts at his birth. They recognized it. See, when Jesus is under trial, Pilate said to him, so, so you are a king? And Jesus responded, answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. See, some have made their observation that the problem with <laughs> what a democracy is that it's totally dependent on just every four years the whim of public opinion. And it's really hard to help people that way because you make all this, you just put in all this effort, you make change, and then it's like, just like, just the poor are just being swung from one pendulum to the other, to the other. And there's no sustainability there. But this child is not here to create a democracy. Isaiah goes on to tell us why you will want him to take dominion. Why you will want him to rule. And it's found in his name. See, this is not only what God tells us about this child, but that the people under his dominion will say this about him. It's like a call and response thing going on here. This is what the people will find true about this, this king, this child that's about to be born. My question to you is, have you found him to be so this Advent season? Has he, has he been these things to you? And the first thing is, he will be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Wonderful counselor. He, he will rule with wisdom. People will marvel at his, at his saying, at, 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 at what he does. They will literally say, we've never seen anything like this. We've never heard anything like this. As the woman at the well said, he told me everything I ever did. I imagine that. Someone telling you everything you ever did, and that's, that makes you comfortable? You okay with that? Everything you ever did. Usually we run away from people like that. See, but he's a wonderful counselor. Right? When he tells us everything we ever did, he does it with wisdom, with tenderness, with gentleness. Because we know he's for us, not against us. He's with us. Not to judge us, not to, not to tell us what we're doing wrong, but because we can feel his love. When he looks at our past, he doesn't just say, yak, and move on. Damaged goods. No. He tenderly counsels us. See, Sir Ian Kierkegaard, uh, mid-century, mid 19th century philosophy, speaking of Jesus' wisdom, said that it's, this is not just mere advice. If he is really the eternal son of God, literally every word that proceeds out of his mouth is on eternal basis. Okay? You can live for eternity. Okay? And not find the words that come out of Jesus' mouth. You can search the entire cosmos and not find 
anything like it. If he really is the eternal son of God. See, he's not giving us mere, mere advice where we can take it or leave it, where we can weigh it against other things that we know or think. Guys, this is serious. You cannot put him on the same shelf if he really is the eternal son of God. You cannot compare him to Muhammad or Buddha or any philosopher we have if he really is the eternal son of God. The words that proceed out of his mouth are precious, are like diamond. All right, mighty God. He's going to be a mighty God. Now, it's, very high, it's highly unlikely that the prophet even knew what he meant by this. Now, this is what I mean. It's one thing to say his name means God is mighty. Okay? The Jewish people did that all the time. Elijah, Elijah, Daniel, John, El, El, right? A little bit of Hebrew there. But, but here he's telling us his name literally is mighty God. Okay? Now, unless you're, you're Hispanic, you, you don't feel comfortable. We don't feel comfortable naming our kids Jesus. The same idea goes here. The Jewish people did not even mention God's name. Name him, alone name a child God, <laughs> mighty God. Okay, the ESV Study Bible commenting on this says, this is literally the title for the Lord himself. The name shared with no one is given to this child. Yeah, he's also an everlasting father. Like, again, here, there's a clear reference to the divine nature of this child. He'll be our king, yes, but he's also our father. He's our king father. Imagine that. He's our king father. He will not be a king who is unapproachable, right? Yes, he will be a mighty God, but he'll be as tender as a father. Eternally. Everlastingly. Do you see why the prophet gets in on the action and says, us, he's born for us, he's given for us. You will never meet a God like this. You will never meet a counselor like this. You will never meet a father like this. But wait, there's still some more. He will be known as Prince of Peace. See, this divine child who will usher in everlasting wholeness. See, the word peace here, we don't have any English equivalent for it. It's a pregnant word. Shalom. Shalom, wholeness, health, flourishing. I mean, it just brings into everything, like sociologically, economically, politically, soundness, peace, shalom. See, this is not just a mere absence of strife. This is not just cold peace, cold war. This is flourishing. This is growth. This is economic. Like, he talks about harvest. This is eternal harvest. This is everyday paycheck. <laughs> like, this is vacation, everyday vacation. Like, why would you not want to be under his rule? 
This is what Christmas is about, family. This is what we are pondering on this Advent season. If you've been doing anything less, I implore you, read the scriptures. Rethink Christmas. It's romantic, yet it's powerful. It's not happy, it's not clappy, it's not sentimental. It works, it gives hope. That there's more. <laughs> Verse 7, we are told of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's the best part. It's not dependent on the bride. It's not dependent on how pure she is, how good she's been. His pursuit of his bride is because of his own zeal, of his own jealousy, of his own passion, of his own love. Nothing will turn him away from her. This is what Christmas is about. <laughs> See, this is why we can't despair. Uh, despair. See, imagine meditating on such a future, on meditating on such a king, on such a kingdom coming. See, this is why the world can do anything against us and push it down, and still we rise. This is why the church must endure. This is why we have a unique message. This is why we cannot trade it in for anything else. This is why we guard it. There is nothing else out there. I'm sorry, guys. There is no other hope. You can't tell me anything else. I'm sorry. I like this. I love it. My heart yearns for it. And I suspect you do, too. This is the message we've been entrusted with. This is why we need to be sober-minded. This is why we need to keep our head up. When Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, this is the good news Timothy is supposed to be preaching. This is what the people are supposed to know so well when they see the charlatans coming no one has to tell them to run. They've met their husband, and I'm sorry, they don't want anything else. This is the good news. This is Christmas. So what is Christmas? Christmas is the guarantee that because of the zealous love, the jealous love of our King Jesus, we can pursue eternal emancipation. This is our strong confidence. This is the only message we have for the world. To sell them anything less, we will be trading diamonds, pearls, for glass. This is good news. 
His Godchild is really good news. Because he promises shalom forever. Eternal life, we have it now. If only we will believe it. Amen? All right, pray for us. Lord, uh, we thank you, we bless you, we love you. Lord, this Advent season, may we please help us, please, ponder on you as our King, as our God, as the love of our souls and bodies and minds. Amen.